Russian air attacks bombard Ukrainian port and crane facilities for a second consecutive night. And this time, the port on the Danube River in Ismail region. Plus, human rights experts say Russian forces continue to commit war crimes in Ukraine. The commission is deeply concerned at the scale and gravity of violations and the continuous evidence of crimes committed by the Russian armed forces in Ukraine. And we emphasize the need for accountability. And later in the program, inspired by online chats with her 82-year-old mother in Kyiv, a Ukrainian playwright's production makes its debut in a Washington, D.C. theater. Today is Tuesday, September 26th, from The Voice of America. This is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. Russia hit Ukrainian port infrastructure and grain storage facilities in an overnight drone strike in the grain exporting district. Ukraine said Tuesday that Russian forces used 38 drones to attack the country overnight and that some made it past Ukrainian air defenses. Anna Chernikova in Kyiv joins us now for an update. Once again, it sounds pretty bad. What can you tell us? Yeah, another a tough night for Ukraine. Uh, 38 drones were targeting Ukrainian territory, uh, and 26 were destroyed by Ukrainian air defense. However, uh, there are reports uh, of the heat, and uh, as you correctly mentioned, Odessa region was uh, under the main attack and the main target by Russian forces this time again. What was confirmed by the Ukrainian officials that as a result of the night drone attack, checkpoint on the border between Ukraine and Romania in Odessa region uh, is not working due to the damage and uh, it was one of the uh, one of the targets of the attack. At this point, uh, transport and people are directed to other checkpoints, uh, which this was reported by the Ukrainian uh, officials. Also, Ukraine reported that drones did not cross the Romanian border. Ukrainian officials also confirmed that uh, yet again, port infrastructure was the main target. And this time, the port on the Danube River in Ismail region. I imagine storage facilities, buildings, were just demolished uh, and and cars and trucks as well apparently. Yes, uh, actually damages are quite significant and port infrastructure in general was damaged. However, we do not have a lot of details because ports are considered strategic objects so we don't really have uh, much details but apparently damages are quite significant because uh, the hits were direct. And also, Anna, it sounds like one of the top Ukrainian officials has some information that was quite interesting about previous attacks. What What is that all about? Actually, yes. Uh, Oleksiy Danilov, Secretary of the National Security and Defense of Ukraine, revealed the details of some previous Russian attacks. And he said that during one of the attacks, Russians hit the site where Ukrainian missiles were manufactured. And after that, the part of the production was, was moved outside of Ukraine. This is some new details coming in, and uh, we're definitely gonna, gonna keep our eye on the news uh, which are coming. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. Ukraine's special forces said on Monday that they had killed Moscow's top admiral in Crimea in last week's missile attack on the headquarters of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, a report Russia has neither confirmed or denied. Diane Tu with Reuters reports. Ukraine's special forces claimed on Monday they had killed the commander of Russia's Black Sea Fleet during an attack last week on the fleet's headquarters in the Crimean port of Sevastopol. 
The Russian Defense Ministry did not immediately confirm or deny to Reuters whether Admiral Viktor Sokolov had been killed in the attack. A video obtained by Reuters shows Friday's attack. The Ukrainian military said it was targeting a meeting of the Russian Navy's leadership in Crimea, which Russia seized and annexed in 2014. On the Telegram messaging app, Ukraine's special forces said, quote, after the strike on the headquarters of the Russian Black Sea Fleet, 34 officers died, including the commander of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Another 105 occupiers were wounded. The headquarters building cannot be restored. Satellite images from Friday showed smoke billowing from the building in Sevastopol's city center. It was not immediately clear how Ukraine's forces counted the dead and wounded in the attack. Both sides have at times inflated claims of enemy losses since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in early 2022. Russian-installed Crimean officials confirmed the Ukrainian attack on Friday, saying at least one missile struck the fleet headquarters. Kyiv has stepped up attacks in the Black Sea and Crimea as Ukrainian forces press on with a nearly four-month-old counteroffensive to take back Russian-occupied territory. That was Diane Tu reporting for Reuters. Independent UN-backed human rights experts say they've turned up continued evidence of war crimes committed by Russian forces in their war against Ukraine. The chair of the UN Independent International Commission of Inquiry in Ukraine, Eric Mosa, said it includes torture, some with such brutality that it led to death and rape of women as old as 83 years old. Willful killings, killing of civilian, rape, deportation, of children, sexual offenses, um, occupied territories, law on uh, the violations on the law in occupied territories, and so on. I spoke with Rachel Denber, Deputy Director for Human Rights Watch Europe and Central Asian Division, for insights on the latest updates from the Commission. This basically is a report that as they continue to investigate, the human rights violations continue? The UN Commission of Inquiry was mandated by the UN Human Rights Council shortly after the full-scale invasion to investigate war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other violations of international humanitarian law. It was originally given a one-year mandate, and then several months ago, its mandate was extended for another year. So what it is doing now, it is continuing the investigation that it had started before. It is both gathering new fact of, you know, new incidents as uh, that, that, that they are uncovering, and it, and it is also digging more deeply into the incidents that it had already documented with a view to understanding the patterns of violation, which is crucial to understanding, which is one piece to, to understanding whether certain violations rise to the level of crime against humanity or even genocide. What are some of the specifics that they talk about in their latest update of their investigating? So the latest update talks about the different type of violations that it has documented, including indiscriminate bombing and shelling that affected civilian objects. So it seems clear that they're trying to sort through some of the, you know, we hear about the daily barrage of missile strikes and drone strikes throughout Ukraine, and this is on top of the very intense bombing 
sending and shelling you know, that took place in the early months of the war. So it's doing a couple of things on that. I think they're tr- it looks like they're trying to dig deeper into some of these incidents to determine whether they were violations of IHL or, or even whether they were not only violations, but violations that were war crimes because they were committed with criminal intent to harm civilians. The report says specifically that they are looking at the bombing and shelling of Ukraine's energy infrastructure, you know, that took place from last autumn and winter to determine whether that is in fact a crime against humanity, which is an area of research that Human Rights Watch has has also taken up because it seemed pretty clear that that bombing and shelling campaign was simply aimed at making civilian life miserable, as miserable as possible and unsustainable. So that's one area of inquiry. Another area of inquiry are crimes of against personal integrity in areas where Russian forces are, you know, occupying. In particular, this update talks about Kherson and Zaporizhia region, which Russia is partially occupying. Um, so crimes of personal integrity, this is you know, torture, rape, other sexual violence. I suppose that they're also looking into extrajudicial executions. Certainly we have documented these. And I think it's relevant here to say that they're looking into that as a potential crime against humanity, which means that, that they're looking into its nature as widespread and systematic, including sexual violence. The message of the Commission of Inquiry is that these look like they are continuing crime. Also worth mentioning that the Special Rapporteur on Torture visited, which is another UN mechanism. It's called a thematic mechanism or a special mechanism and visited Ukraine in, I think, late August, but early September and issued a statement uh, in, you know, at the end of her visit in which she said that it seemed quite clear that the tortures, these aren't random acts. They are rather orchestrated, planned with the intent to punish, to intimidate, to extract confessions and the like. And that is also on top of another reporting mechanism, which is the UN's uh, Special Human Rights Monitoring Mission that has been based in Ukraine since 2014 and which also issues periodic reports documenting many different areas of humanitarian law issues. Apparently, the members of the Independent Commission of Inquiry also expressed concerns about allegations of genocide, and they are looking into them. And I know that the word genocide is not thrown around lightly, and there are very specific guidelines for constituting what could be genocide. But the fact that this is even something they're concerned about and that they're looking into, what does this say? What does this mean? The way in which it's raised in the update of the Commission of Inquiry is they, they specifically mentioned that they are looking at the rhetoric transmitted in Russian states and other media and whether that rhetoric constituted incitement to genocide. When people talk about genocide, they're talking about a very uh, specific crime of intent, and it's the intent to destroy in part or in whole a group. And so there's a very high, it's a very difficult crime to, to prove. So I think it's quite significant that the Commission of Inquiry uh, is even is looking into it. Well, there have been, I mean, no, I, 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 I can't speak for the Commission, uh, but you know, there have. I, mean, I imagine that they're looking at some of the rhetoric they've seen on Russian state television. I should also say that many people have invoked the crime of genocide uh, with relation to the forced transfer of Ukrainian children to Russia. The act of the forced transfer of uh, children is a war crime, and it was that war crime that formed the basis of the arrest warrant for Putin and the Russian Children's Rights Commissioner Maria Lvova-Belova back in March. The International Criminal Court uh, did not say that they were investigating this as a crime of genocide, but just to say that some elements 
elements of the forced transfer of children can be an element uh, in a crime of genocide. Once they acquire whatever Im- the amount of information they need to feel certain about all of these things, whether it's war crimes, uh, genocide, what will they do with the information? They are doing this uh, with a view to promoting accountability. So you know, the aim is to document, to come up with a conclusion about patterns of violations for use in judicial investigations that will hopefully lead to accountability, whether these are judicial investigations that are conducted by the Ukrainian courts or by the many courts in Europe that have, and outside Europe, that have what's called universal jurisdiction, which means that they can investigate and prosecute certain international crimes that take place beyond their national boundaries, or you know, potentially by the International Criminal Court. I mean, it's not as though the, the information that the International Commission of Inquiry replaces investigations by any of these bodies, but it can be a significant element in these bodies' assessments of violations and cases that are under review. Rachel Denver, Deputy Director for Human Rights Watch, Europe and Central Asian Division. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. In New York last week, where world leaders were meeting for the UN General Assembly, there was also a meeting that wasn't widely publicized, but could be strategically significant. U.S. President Joe Biden hosted the first ever heads of state summit between the United States and Central Asia's five countries, former Soviet republics, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. I spoke with Eric McGlinchey, Associate Professor of Politics and Government at George Mason University, to get his thoughts on the summit's potential significance. I think what it says is that, indeed, the United States is paying attention to Central Asia after a long time, but paying attention in a very different way. And I think this is the main point that I want to get across. Up until 2001, when the United States was paying attention to Central Asia, it was through the lens of democracy promotion. After 2001, it was a very transactional engagement where it was what can Central Asia do for the United States as it wages its fight in in Afghanistan. So it was a security lens. And neither of these lenses took the regimes of Central Asia at face value. So if you're a leader in Central Asia and you're being approached through the democracy lens, this is a threat, right? I mean, basically, Washington is constantly saying you're not a de- you're not a democracy. You're you're coming up short among uh, on the measures of what we want to we being Washington want to promote globally, and let us tell you the ways in which you're not meeting Washington's expectations. So that was a very challenging lens from the point of view of Central Asia's autocratic leaders. The transactional security lens. I think Central Asian leaders knew from the get go that this was going to be short lived. That U.S. attention in Afghanistan would wane. And also, it came with considerable downsides. Uh, having U.S., particularly in Kyrgyzstan, the U.S. presence in Kyrgyzstan was a political liability for the leadership. So so that wasn't the best approach either. This is the first time that I can, actually, I think this is the first time, period, full stop, that the United States is engaging Central Asian leaderships. And again, I want to stress these are autocratic leaderships, but still engaging these leaderships on grounds with which they're comfortable, which is sovereignty, independence, taking these countries for what they are and saying, despite all your bumps and flaws, we support you. And it's not this unrealistic measure of democracy. It's not this short-lived transactional measure. We support your independence and your sovereignty. And that's how we're going to define our relationship with you. So it's a fundamentally different kind of engagement than we have ever seen coming out of Washington relative to the Central Asian governments. There's the underlying elephant in 
the room, so to speak, that their neighbor is Russia. And while President Vladimir Putin, he's denied it, but seems to have bigger ambitions about reviving the former Soviet Union. I'm sure that gives neighbors pause. I would imagine that this is part of a strategy to sort of urge these countries to avoid over-reliance on Russia and even China. Well, so, you know, Putin also denied killing Prigozhin, right? <laughs> True. Right. I think Putin is very adept at acting like a mafia. He, he's very good at making threats, and he's outright threatened Central Asian sovereignty in the past. So, you know, in 2014, he gave Nazarbayev the most backhanded compliment of all time, where he he said that Nazarbayev deserves credit for creating a state in territory where a state had never been before, right? So he, he basically said, congratulations, Nazarbayev, you, you, you made a state uh, that essentially was part of the Russian Empire of northern Kazakhstan. In 2022, Medvedev and his Kontaktia post uh, called Kazakhstan an artificial state. You got Semenyan's husband, Tigran, saying that Kazakhstan wasn't sufficiently supportive of, of the Kremlin in the war against Ukraine. Uh, so you have either the leadership itself or the mouthpieces of the leadership repeatedly, in the, particularly in the case of Kazakhstan, saying, hey, you know, be careful here. We don't view your state sovereignty as legitimate. We don't view your nationality, your, your national integrity as legitimate. You should be deferential, at the very least. That said, you know, when push comes to shove, is, is, is Russia going to go into northern Kazakhstan? I highly doubt it. it. It's struggling to hold territory in Ukraine, and it will be a very different kind of fight, of course, in Kazakhstan. But I don't think there's much upside for Russia for trying to act actually occupy territory in Central Asia. You know, one data point that I think is worth mentioning is we saw that in 2010, Kyrgyzstan requested support from Russia to help quell the ethnic riots following the uprising, the revolution there, or revolution, the, the regime change there. And Russia, in contrast to what it did in Kazakhstan in 2022, decided to have nothing to do with it. And I think that gives you a sense of just the headache that would come with, with actually trying to take territory in Central Asia. So I think it's unrealistic, but that doesn't mean that it's highly uncomfortable for these leaders to constantly be reminded by the Kremlin that Russia could make things very difficult. So I don't think it's a real threat, but on the international stage, it doesn't help the leaderships to be constantly being bullied by Russia on this question of sovereignty. Overall, this meeting, it doesn't portend a significant deepening of U.S. engagement with the region, but potentially giving leaders additional leverage in their struggle to avoid over-reliance on Russia and China, as we mentioned. Russia and China are not going away, obviously, for Central Asia. Russia to the north, China to the south. There's no escaping Russia and China. Russia is going to be politically incredibly important for Central Asia for the years to come. China is going to be economically important. Russia is also economically important, I should say, as well. Uh, Tajikistan, I think, is the state that relies most on remittances, and those are, are laborers in Russia, Tajik laborers in Russia. Tajikistan relies more remittances than any other country in the world. I don't know if that's still it had been in the past. But the point that I wanted to make here is having that audience with the U.S. president gives Central Asian leaders one thing that they desperately want, which is international credibility. Having access to Washington and the networks that surround Washington, other Western leaders. The point here is it, it gives them a degree of credibility that they wouldn't otherwise have. And it potentially opens avenues of trade, avenues of diplomacy that can, as your question points to, act as a balance to this heavy dependence on Russia. 
Russian China. So I think that's critically important. You've done some surveys in the region on people's opinions of Russia's war in Ukraine. What was the takeaway? This is something that I, I found a little shocking, particularly because, as you mentioned in some of your questions, that the Central Asian leadership has not been overly supportive of Russia's action in Ukraine. In fact, they, they, they haven't come out and said they support it. They haven't voted in the UN Assembly to, to, to condemn Russia either. But the, the absence of, of strong support, I think, is notable. When you look at Central Asian public opinion, one thing that we've found in surveys in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and to a slightly lesser degree in Uzbekistan, still nonetheless, Central Asian public opinion sees Russia's actions in Ukraine as, if not legitimate, a response to the West's meddling in the region and doesn't see the conflict as necessarily Moscow's fault, but sees the conflict as the West's fault, as the United States' fault, as NATO's fault. So the anger is not so much at the Kremlin, the anger is at the West. And I think that speaks to the incredible job that Russian propaganda, Russian state news has done in Central Asia. As you know far better than I, as someone who works at VOA, that the Russian media completely blankets the region and access to objective media like VOA or other other sources is completely drowned out by, by the Russian media. Eric McGlinchey, Associate Professor of Politics and Government at George Mason University. Thank you for being with us. My Mama and the Full-Scale Invasion, a play by Ukrainian playwright Sasha Denisova, made its debut at Washington, D.C.'s Woolly Mammoth Theater this month on September 11th. The play was inspired by online chats its creator had with her 82-year-old mother who lives near Kiev. Maxim Adams has the story. In this scene from My Mama and the Full-Scale Invasion, Ukrainian playwright Sasha Denisova's mother is on the phone with President Zelensky, and she is aiming a jar of pickles at Russian drones. Inspired by a constant stream of exchanges with her mom, Denisova has created a dark, yet funny play centered around Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This play is about my mom, who refused to leave Ukraine when Russia invaded. She just said, I'm not going anywhere. Since the start of the war, she's behaved like she's the commander-in-chief. Here we have Zelensky, Macron, Biden, they're all here, and my mom's in charge. That's how the play begins. Despite the obviously dark theme of the play, there is a lot of light-heartedness and a lot of humor in it. Even Vladimir Putin shows up. We looked for a play forever, and then we found Sasha's play. It truly is a miracle. She connects real messages, the ones her mom sends her via Skype, with this fantastical reality. The play references not just the current war in Ukraine, but also the Second World War, the Nazi occupation of Europe, famine, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, alcoholism, domestic violence, the many things Olga, who is at the heart of the play, has seen and experienced in her life. 
thing that is the most exciting about the kinds of plays that we can do at Wally Mammoth is that we can challenge people to think about things a little bit differently than they would. Denisova worked in Russia for many years, but immediately left when Moscow invaded Ukraine. Today she believes the most important thing is to talk to the world about the ongoing war. We're just like you, just save us. Ukraine needs to live. Ukraine shouldn't lose its best men on the battlefield. And if just one person cries during the play, it means we did it right. The play will be at the Wooly Mammoth Theater in Washington, D.C. until October 8th. Maxim Adams, VOA News, Washington. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage of Ukraine and news from around the world, 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, we thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. This is the voice of America. Washington, Papa, Bozette, D.C.